join me, if you will, as we read God's Word, as we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, we come to the end of chapter 20, which in this passage spills over a few verses into the beginning of chapter 21. So I'll begin uh, reading in verse 41 and read through chapter 21, verse 4. Before we read God's word together, let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your inspired and inerrant word, which holy men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what you intended to be written for our edification and for our encouragement. Pray now that this reading and my preaching of the word would not be in wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but rather a demonstration of your spirit's power to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 41, this is where Luke writes, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And in verse, chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and therefore authoritative word. Thanks be to God. My former profession, I was a coach, and I still coach on a volunteer basis, and I tend to be old school as a coach, meaning I value very highly teamwork and fundamentals and defense. Not real big on individual stats or fancy showmanship. So with my coaching, I'm constantly yelling things like, make the easy pass, or look for the open man, or sprint back on defense. Showing off your own individual skills may get you recognized for the time being, but I've found that it seldom wins games. But I know I'm fighting a losing battle in coaching because most NBA superstar role models that the boys I coach look up to play one-on-one showtime ball. The late, great Kobe Bryant is infamous for saying, there may not be an I in team, but there is a me in team. But if self-centered showmanship is counterproductive in sports, in which just wins and losses are at stake, It is downright deadly in Christian ministry and Christian discipleship where actual souls of people hang in the balance. This kind of self-centeredness is the root of hypocrisy, which Jesus has no tolerance for at all. Jesus is 
a compassionate and gracious and gentle friend of sinners. He welcomes those who are messed up and who know they're messed up. But he has no time for religious hypocrites who are simply out for their own glory and thus are robbing God of his glory. And that kind of hypocrisy feeds on an inadequate view of Christ. If your Christ is too small, then you will tend to be too big, at least in your own eyes. So Jesus blisters them for their narcissism and for their hypocrisy in this passage. And in its place, he commends this beautiful, endearing, and enduring counterexample of this woman, showing her utmost heart submission to Christ's lordship, which leads to both integrated living and, as we'll see, sacrificial giving. So three points this evening. First, a question. Second, a condemnation. And third, a commendation. First of all, a question. We see this in verses 41 through 44 of chapter 20. The religious leaders we've seen for uh, chapter after chapter are just peppering Jesus with one question after another. They're interrogating him. And there's nothing wrong with questions per se. A good, honest question is welcome to Jesus. But these are more of the gotcha kind of questions in which it becomes very obvious that they are simply trying to trap Jesus in what he says. They have sinister motives behind them. And Jesus is so wise and so discerning in his answers that he lays bare their heart motives for everyone to see. And he reduces them to saying simply, well said, teacher. And they try to slink away unnoticed. Luke tells us they would not ask him any more questions, verse 40. But Jesus says, not so fast. I have a question for you. Verse 41, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, who is they there? Well, it seems to be, if we look at Matthew's gospel, uh, the Pharisees. How can they, the Pharisees, say that Christ is David's son? Now, what is Jesus after here exactly? Well, he's definitely not denying that the Christ is, in fact, David's son, or that he himself is the Christ. In the very passage that Dr. Thomas preached this morning, Paul writes to Timothy, Jesus is the who, the offspring of David. And that's recounted as at other places in the New Testament as well. So Jesus isn't saying that's not the case. He's saying, how is that the case? He wants them to reason this through. Because in the 110th Psalm, which Jesus quotes a couple of verses from, David seems to be saying something at odds with that. I emphasize seems to be. This is a paradox, not a contradiction. So Jesus wants them to think this through. How is it the case? And he quotes the 110th Psalm, and he attributes it to David, verse 42, who was listening in on a conversation between Yahweh, in the original Hebrew, translated Lord, and someone to whom this Lord is speaking to, called Adonai, which is also translated Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, and David is saying that this Adonai to whom Yahweh is speaking is his personal Lord. He, David, submits to this person's lordship. And it's clear from the context, and it's also very clear that it's uh, Jesus's interpretation, that this person is the Christ, 
This is a messianic psalm. What's extraordinary about this is that this Christ, this descendant of David, will also be David's Lord. He will be both at the same time the shoot of David and the root of David. Now, the descendant is said to be greater than his ancestor, but in Jewish culture, the children always defer to the parents. The parents never defer to the children. So what's going on here? How can David, whom you might say is the Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish nation, he is the absolute paragon of kingliness in Israel, how can he be said to be bowing the knee to his descendant, the one who comes after him? Most of David's heirs didn't hold a candle to the kind of king that he was. Most of them were terrible kings. But David says, this one is different. This descendant surpasses me in every conceivable way. He is my Lord. He is my Adonai. You know, American presidents serve four years, maybe eight years, and then their term of office is over. Kings in other parts of the world serve only the length of their lifetimes. After they're gone, their reign is gone. But this king, we're told in 1 Samuel and elsewhere in Scripture, will reign forever and ever and ever, which inspired Handel to write that beautiful Messiah that we love to hear sung at Christmas time and Easter. So this descendant is said to be infinitely greater than his ancestor. He is my Lord, my Adonai. And what Psalm 110 says about this Adonai can only be true if he's not only human, but also divine. Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand, verse 42. This implies solidarity between the king's throne and the throne of heaven. This person is God's vice-regent one who is equal in power and authority with him, and yet also distinct in his personhood. Even though God himself says in Scripture, he will not give his glory to another. So this person is of the same essence, the same substance as God himself, and yet a different person. And all of his enemies, the psalm tells us, will eventually be vanquished. Scripture tells us the last enemy to be defeated is death. We see that in verse 43. So Jesus is not denying that he, the Christ, is the son of David. He's saying, I'm not merely in the royal lineage of David. You can't put me in a box and say he is the son of David and no more. So it's not wrong to say he's the son of David. It's just incomplete. He is much more than a nationalistic ruler who will beat down the Romans and restore the good old days for Israel. He is the son of God, not just the son of David. So he comes to beat down death and hell and sin and to sit on the throne of the universe for all eternity. But he seems in their eyes, in their tunnel vision, like a mere man someone that they could perhaps use and manipulate for their own narrow agendas. But this psalm shows us a king who will not be manipulated, who cannot be used as a sledgehammer by one political party over against another one or one nation over against another one because he transcends them all. 
He's the God-man that we must all bow the knee to. He has inherent authority to tell us how we are to live our lives, and we must submit to that authority. If he's merely the son of David, you see, they can compartmentalize their lives. They can have a Sabbath persona, and then they can have a rest of the week persona, and never the two shall meet. So Jesus' question just sort of lingers in the air, a rhetorical question for them to chew on for a while and to figure it out and to think it through because their picture of the Christ is incomplete. And until the Christ is not just David's Lord to them, but also their Lord too, then their lives would be incomplete. So we first see a question. Secondly, we see a condemnation. We see this in verses 45 through 47 of chapter 20, a condemnation. The religious leaders do not regard their Messiah as their Lord. They put their Messiah in a box. They think he is a man just like themselves. And so they do not recognize their Messiah when he stands in their midst. A truncated Christ leads to a truncated life. He was simply David 2.0 to them. Maybe a royal sledgehammer by which to pummel their political oppressors, but certainly not a sovereign Lord who would rule their lives benevolently. It's not a surprise because they also had a truncated view of God, whom they kind of thought is the big Pharisee in the sky, someone who's just like them, only more powerful. And it's a reminder to us that it matters supremely what we think about God. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. J.I. Packer famously said that what we think when we hear the name of God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. Theology is life. Our theology determines our idea of lordship, which also in turn determines our discipleship. These religious leaders had an inadequate view of their Messiah, and it caused them to simply act spiritual and not actually be spiritual. In other words, not led by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus switches audience here. He turns from the Sadducees to the disciples. He wants to address his own disciples for a few moments, but still in the hearing of all the people. It's kind of like our children's sermon from time to time. A lot of times on Sunday evenings, an intern will address the children, but we all get to hear the children's sermon too. And since Jesus commends the faith of a child, it behooves us, doesn't it, to listen in to the children's sermon, to listen to Dr. Thomas's children's sermon this morning, because it's really for all of us. Well, Jesus addresses his disciples specifically, but he very intentionally lets everyone else overhear what he has to say. And what he does is gives them an example not to follow. Verse 46, beware, danger ahead. And he says, whatever you do, don't be like those scribes. So he points out that this negative example can be just as useful as a positive example. And so he points to them and he says, don't be like that. 
And since everyone is hearing this, I wonder if the scribes were in a corner saying, you know, we can hear you, Jesus. And of course, he knew that they could, and he wants them to hear because he's calling them to repentance. This is their chance to give up their political gamesmanship and turn to him. So he blisters them for putting on a show rather than for actually serving people. He says they love to walk around in long robes, verse 46. To wear a robe as your daily duds communicated something. It showed that you were not a working man. Because working men kept their loins girded up, ready for action, ready for manual labor. A robe said, I am not a working man, I'm a man of leisure. So it kind of puts you a cut above those who worked for a living, who got their hands dirty. They also loved greetings in the marketplaces, verse 46. They loved being fawned over. They loved extravagant titles. They liked to be recognized as, again, a notch above the common folk. They craved preeminence. They couldn't get enough of it. They wanted the first-class seats. They wanted the premier parking. They, they wanted the preferred seating everywhere they went. Even though James warns us about preferential treatment within the church, religious leaders can be part of the problem if they insist on being treated as somebody with a capital S. Rather than doing the most menial job in the church and serving people anonymously, which Jesus commends to us, do you want to be great? Then go be the servant of all. Jesus has also watched them possibly taking jurisdiction of widows' estates and skimming off a generous piece of the pie for themselves, verse 47. It could have been that they were simply taking advantage of the hospitality of widows. But whatever it was that they were doing with these widows, they covered it over by praying these insufferably long prayers that just went on and on and on. And yet length is not what Jesus is criticizing here so much as lack of depth and insincere motives. It isn't to praise, but for pretense, Luke tells us, verse 47. It's piling up empty phrases, thinking that you will be heard for your many words, as Jesus explains elsewhere. God hears heartfelt prayers poured out to him in humble trust, regardless of how long they are. A friend of mine years ago suspected that her pastor was praying too long, and so she timed him in his pastoral prayer, one of the churches that I've served in the past. His pastoral prayer was 27 minutes long. So if length is what his fault was, he was guilty as charged. But even Jesus prayed prayers all night, so clearly he is not impugning length so much as he is impugning lack of depth and false pretenses in prayer. The most efficacious prayer I ever prayed in my life was two words, save me. And I love those arrow prayers that we see in the Bible from time to time. I remember Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1, just in the spur of the moment when he senses his inadequacy and need for God to work, sends a quick prayer to heaven and receives an answer. Well, Jesus issues stern warnings about how these scribes are robbing God of the honor that is only due to him alone. 
So the bigger the scribes seem to themselves, the smaller their God seems by comparison. And Jesus says, it's why greater condemnation is coming to them. Verse 47, we're reminded that some sins are more egregious than others. God does not regard all sins alike. And we're reminded that the greatest condemnation is not coming to the sexual deviants or the drug addicts, but for wolves who are dressed up in sheep's clothing and who wear a false cloak of piety to hide their indifference to the poor and their own selfish ambition. Those who bifurcate their lives into a, a spiritual persona over here and a secular persona over there. Those who are not what they appear to be. So again, having a small view of Christ allows us to have a disintegrated life. Having a biblical view of Christ as both man and God, as the one who knows all about us, everything about us, even the things that no one else knows about us, and yet still loves us enough to be nailed to a cross for us. Sinless as the Lamb of God, uniquely qualified to be our atoning Savior, to be our Lamb, human and compassionate to understand our weakness, uniting us to himself by grace, changing us by his Holy Spirit. That is the Christ that we need. Bowing to him leads to an integrated life and to a genuine life. So we have a question, we have a condemnation, and thirdly and finally, we have a commendation. We see this in chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. As a counterexample to all this hypocrisy, And to all this self-centeredness, Jesus notices this woman. Verse 2, she has three strikes against her right off the bat. First of all, she's a woman, strike one. Secondly, she's a poor widow. And thirdly, she is poor. She's practically a non-person by her own culture standards. But certainly not to Jesus. Jesus sees her. Jesus notices her. And he sees you, no matter how insignificant you may feel from time to time. If you ever feel the disdain or indifference of other people, you are not that way to Jesus. He sees you, he knows everything about you, and he loves you. And Jesus sees this woman when no one else does. Everyone watches the rich, in verse 1, who are parading through the court of the women, and they're dropping their free will offerings into these 13 trumpet-shaped metal receptacles. And when the rich pour in their heavy gifts, it makes this loud clang and clatter that everyone turns and notices and nods their approval at. But when this poor widow, verse 2, comes in, when we hear that phrase, poor widow, it's almost redundant because widows in the first century were understood to be poor because they were widows. So for Luke to tell us that she's a a poor widow, he's really emphasizing she's on a whole other level of destitution. You know, it's one thing to be poor in an inner city in America, and it means something else to be poor in Uganda. And this woman is poor by Uganda standards. She has nothing to live on. 
She doesn't know what she'll eat tonight. She likely only owns the clothes on her backs. Her cupboards are bare. She doesn't know where her sustenance is coming from. She might have been one of those victims whose houses were gobbled up by the religious leaders. But people turn away from her when she comes in. She makes them feel awkward. And and most people are simply indifferent to her and pay her no attention at all. But Jesus, you'll notice, is intently interested in this lady. He catches, she catches his eye and and he notices what she does here. He watches her pull out these two lepta, which were the smallest currency available in that time, uh, corresponding in that sense to our penny, even though a lepta was much less than a penny. Most people, if they saw a lepton on the ground, wouldn't trouble themselves to bend over and pick it up. But to this woman, it's precious because it's all she's got. And so she places these two small copper lepta in the shofar. And they're so piddly, they probably hardly made a tink as she dropped them in. But that, that is a sweet sound in the ears of Jesus. And it reverberates in the heart of Jesus because that sound was the sound of childlike trust. Because this woman knows who her God is. She does not have a truncated view of her God. She didn't see him as some big version of herself. She know him, knows him as Yahweh Yireh the God who provides, because he has provided for her in her widowhood when her husband passed away and she had no income. It was the Lord who provided for her needs. She knows him as the owner of the cattle and a thousand hills. Maybe she identifies with the widow in Elisha's day. She knows him as the one who provides enough oil to fill all the vessels in that lady's house and all the borrowed vessels that she got from her neighbors filled her with enough oil to pay off all her debts and to provide for her future needs. She knows him as the one who's filled her, an empty vessel, with with his Holy Spirit. She knows him as the one who will provide the lamb. Does her gift here not say everything about who she believes God to be? I mean, nobody would give like this unless they believe that God is absolutely able to give exceeding abundantly, far beyond anything we ask or imagine. So she doesn't need to say a word. Her, her simple actions say, my heart belongs to him who will raise the dead again. To borrow a phrase from Emmylou Harris. And Jesus, the great appraiser of men's and women's hearts, looks at her offering and he places it on his scales. And he takes all the riches given in the temple that day and he says, hers outweighs all of those combined, verse three. And we think, wait, what? How can that be the case? But you see, Jesus is not measuring the amount. What he's measuring is the amount left over after the offering is given. For the rich people, It's quite a bit left over. They probably don't really miss what's been placed in the offering. But for her, she has nothing left to live on. Zero. So she gives it all. Verse 4. What will she eat tonight? She doesn't know. But she does know who will provide it. And she places her trust in him. See, this lady serves a big God. The God of Scripture. The God she knows not as a doctrine, but as a person 
who has not snuffed her out when she was a smoldering wick, who has not broken her when she was a bent reed, the one who has drawn near to her and comforted her when she was heartbroken. And it makes her a fully integrated person. There are zero pretenses with this woman. She knows who is looking out for her, and her total, complete trust is in this God. And it makes all the difference in her life. Like David, she will not give to the Lord that which costs her nothing. You might be tempted to say she's the greatest example of sacrificial giving that we see in the New Testament, but of course, she's not. In just a few days, the one who was eternally rich will become poor so that we, through his poverty, might be rich. He was in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a slave, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we've got to look to God's word for accurate information about who Jesus is. The world will try to show us a very truncated Christ who we can put in a box. We've got to get our theology, our Christology from Scripture and only from Scripture. Your Christology, after all, will determine your view of his lordship. The kind of Lord you believe him to be will, of course, determine the kind of disciple that you are. As Dr. Thomas said a few weeks ago, if he is not God in the flesh, he cannot be our Savior. And if he's not our Savior, then he's not our Lord either. Theology matters a great deal. Second, glean this great wisdom from the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Corinthians. Set aside on the first day of the week, so to speak, a portion of your income so that you will have enough to give sacrificially when the time comes. Don't wait and see what is left over at the end of the month because God does not want our leftovers. And so prioritize your offerings and your tithes. That will restrict what you have left over to spend on yourself, which of course is the point. So give until it hurts. And if it's too excruciating to give until it hurts, don't give grudgingly. Don't write that check with resentment in your heart. Don't click on that sin button with reluctance in your heart. But just look to Christ. Just look to Jesus, the one who was eternally rich and yet for our sakes did not hesitate to become poor so that we through his poverty might be rich. Be enthralled all over again with his wonderful, beautiful, sacrificial love for you poured out on the cross to save you from your sins and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will always make much of Christ and little of us. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you will be giving Christ his due. He will be to you not just the son of David, but also the son of God and perhaps most importantly, your Lord and your God. Abraham Kuyper 
the Dutch reformer who became prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 1900s, famously wrote, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there's not a square inch in the whole realm of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not say, this is mine. But Kuiper did not always see it that way. Early in his pastoral ministry, he regarded especially devout people in his congregation as troublemakers and discontents because he was a modernist preacher at that time and he didn't quite preach the gospel. He preached moralism in its place. But he was confronted by one of those people and her name was Picha Baltus and she was an older lady and she approached him and she told him quite bluntly, Pastor, you are not giving us the bread of life. Preach the gospel to us. And he said, well, what do you mean? And she went on to witness to him about her own experience of the Lord Jesus' great love for her, the grace of Christ. And she showed him in a very heartfelt way how her beliefs and his beliefs differed quite a bit. At first, Kuiper tried to argue with her, but then he started listening more and more as what she was saying was coming straight from Scripture. And this peasant woman, of very little significance in the world's eyes, became a teacher to this very distinguished doctor of theology. She introduced Kuiper to a Christ that he already thought he knew. She shared her great learning of the scriptures, but she also showed him a heart that was absolutely enthralled with Jesus Christ and on fire with love for him. She introduced him to Calvin's Institutes, which he read and which actually led to his conversion and completely changed his life and his outlook. It integrated all of his thinking because his common reference point was no longer himself or science, but it was Christ. His world was for the first time Christocentric, theocentric. Christ was now the Lord of all to him. Now we too, like Kuiper, can learn a great deal from a peasant woman in this passage that the world may deem of very little value, but has a lot to teach us about what it means to be fervently devoted, not to a doctrine and not to a tradition, but to the triune God who saves us with his sacrificial love. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for the one who was eternally rich and yet for our sakes became poor, did not hesitate to come and live in poverty so that we might be eternally rich. How gracious and kind you are to us. Thank you for the gift of salvation. May it make us cheerful givers who love to present ourselves to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.